to Dirt Maps, a tributary to The Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema. In today's episode, we interview Professor Raya Morag from Hebrew University of Jerusalem about her work on post-traumatic cinema, the envy of perpetrator trauma, and defeated masculinity. To hear more interviews and conversations about the construction and maintenance of war culture, you can look for The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project, wherever you find your podcasts. Enjoy the show. Raya Morag is a professor in cinema studies in the Department of Communication and Journalism at Hebrew University in Jerusalem in Israel. Her research deals with post-traumatic cinema and corporeal feminist film critique. She is the author of numerous texts, including Defeated Masculinity, Post-Traumatic Cinema in the Aftermath of War, and Waltzing with Bashir, Perpetrator Trauma and Cinema. She joins me now via Zoom. Professor Morag, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to The Real War Project. Thank you so much for inviting me. It took us a few emails to get here. Thank you for your patience. I'm wondering if you could begin just by taking a few moments to introduce yourself uh, and your research a little bit more for our audience. As you said, I'm an Israeli. So maybe my attachment to to trauma has to do with my being an Israeli. Uh, Although I I wrote uh, extensively on other corpora, like I wrote on, as you know, on Vietnam War films, on new German cinema, on, and lately on Cambodian cinema and Chinese cinema. So my main uh, focus is trauma and cinema, or if I may be more precise on trauma, cinema and ethics. I'm a trauma cinema scholar and I devoted most of my research and activity to questions of trauma and cinema, focusing mainly on perpetrators, less on victims, although I wrote on victims, but my main focus during the entire years of research and and my three, four books is is the perpetrator figure. I'm interested in this side of the, I don't know, of the problematics of uh, war and genocide. Not Not the conventional side, let's see. Let's say it this way. It's such a refreshing perspective as someone who's been spending a year now studying just war rhetoric and cinema. Your book really stands out amidst a lot of the stuff that I've read. In particular, I'm talking about defeated masculinity. It's so fascinating. You essentially explore these concepts through three axes in this book. You identify cinema, trauma, and masculinity. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just start with cinema. What role does cinema play? Why are films so important to you? Well, in Hebrew, we have this expression, it's some kind of a popular expression, I don't know if you have it in English as well, I didn't check that, that a person who is a cinephile, you know what is cinephile, right? Oh, yeah. A person who is crazy on cinema, so in Hebrew, we say we live in the cinema, so this is not like Woody Allen's Papyrus of Cairo, in which a protagonist goes out of the screen to the audience. But I, I'm I really in my heart and in my intellectual life, really live cinema, like cinema is part of me. So, and what's it, the role of cinema or, or what's the importance of cinema in, uh, in these cultural discourses or psychological, psychoanalytics and, and gender and cultural discourses? I think that cinema has this unique ability to foresee 
all kinds of tensions and ideological uh, happenings before we can see that uh, actually in reality. Like it, it has this, this unique t- attachment to the, what Frederick Jameson calls the political unconscious. And you can feel the political unconscious through cinema. So besides loving cinema and being a cinephile, I think cinema is a major venue to to read a culture and social uh, uh, phenomena in a, in, a, in a different way. So the first axis is cinema. The other two, we said, are trauma and uh, masculinity. On page 28 of your introduction, you say... Uh, the male body that carries the burden of defeat in cinema is typically missing masculine power, is left non-sexual and deprived of gaze. You say that this is often done in ways that repress the trauma of defeat and the presence of the victorious other, um, as well as through a kind of self-perception of the male subject as a victim and not a perpetrator. We're going to unpack all of this as we go, uh, but first, just generally, what is the defeated male then as we see him in cinema? Can you give a few examples? Yes, sure. What I found really fascinating about Vietnam War films and the other corpus in which I uh, got into or tried to get into the, the, what I call the defeated male, which is the uh, new German cinema, post-World War II new German cinema, is that in all these films, uh, defeat is not present. Defeat is repressed. Uh, in these two different wars, in two different uh, societies, and, and in the films that came out of these two different wars, what we can see by, by definition, I think, is that um, defeat is repressed, but a defeated male is, is present. And what I try to do is characterize this defeat, the maleness defeat, defeat of the male. In other words, the films devoid any discussion of defeat. Mostly they pretend to be victorious or not to mention the question of defeat or the question of victory at all. Uh, so we have in both corpora, both in Vietnam War films, maybe to, to this corpus we shall dedicate uh, our talk, and in, but in New German cinema as well, what we can see is that the films like speak, speak in two levels, the, the, the text and the subtext, in two voices. In, that means that the subtext subverts the text, undermine the text and subverts the world drama. And in many different ways, represent and expose the destabilization of masculine identity. So I set out a set of criteria to examine this defeat or the defeated male, um, the representation of the social order, symbolic order, uh, the the father figure, the, the brotherhood, and sexuality, the, the body, the representation of the body. And, and through all these criteria, I came to the conclusion that in all these films, uh, or most of the films uh, represent the defeated male. But, but of course, we can see it in different layers of the films as well, because most of the canonic text, films on the Vietnam War relate to the pre-1968 time span, which is really, one wonders 
why is that? And we know that 1968 is the period prior to the Tet Offensive, that is to the official acknowledgement of the certainty of defeat by the American public. So it's not by incident that films done by so many different um, uh, directors in a, in, a, in a group of, of, I don't know how many films were done on the Vietnam War, I guess. So many. Around 400, including made-for-TV films. I didn't watch the entire 400, but if we can pick the 50 paradigmatic films, the most canonic films, the film that got the intention, uh, uh, the films that were... Um, criticized by uh, reviewers in, the, in, the, in journalism and by scholarship and were accepted by the audience, then we can see that all of them addressed the, the period prior to the Tet Offensive or like in Full Metal Jacket, the Tet Offensive itself. This means that even in the time span represented in the films, we get a feeling of victory. They do not address the defeat. Not uh, in, in the real world, they represent what we call the digestives, but not also in the epistemological level of the films that is addressing the spectator on, on, a, on a time span that has nothing to do with the actual uh, outcome of the war. We've, we found your book when we were doing a batch of movies um, about how like Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket have informed American filmmaking. And your analysis cuts so interestingly across all of them. The text subtext contradiction at the end of Full Metal Jacket when they're walking away singing M-I-C-K-E-Y against the flames. It's just an iconic moment that does not say defeat in any classical sense. It's really dodging and avoiding this in vast fascinating ways. Hey there, hi there, ho there, you're as welcome as can be. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U. It's outside of your scope, but with the, uh, the time frame, but we looked at the movie Jarhead. I love this job. I thank God for every day that he gives me in the core. Ooh, wow. God, show me the way because the devil's trying to break me down which comes out much later. And we looked at the movie 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. You're the last resort. You will wait. None of you have to go. But we are the only help they have. Which comes out much later. And this is such a robust concept. I think when Joker walks uh, in the evening, during the evening to the Perfume River and they they think and we hear his thoughts going back to Mary Jane, blah, blah, broken heart and crotch and then My thoughts drift back to erect nipple wet dreams about Mary Jane rotten crotch and the great homecoming fantasy. I am so happy that I am alive in one piece and short. So what we got is what we usually find at the closure of most of the films that are post-traumatic films. Because if you look at films that are post-traumatic by their characteristics, what you see is the closure is alien to the entire narrative. The closure is like not a real closure. It doesn't come out of all the strings of the plot or the narrative, but it's, it's some kind of an imposed closure. Like you're trying to, to, to put an, an end to this 
burst of trauma that nobody can control. So film after film after film, you can see that the, the closure is totally different because the closure tries to set again some kind of a victorious tone on, on, on a narrative which is totally post-traumatic. I am so happy that I am alive in one piece and short. I'm in a world of Yes, but I am alive and I am not afraid. So this is a characteristic of post-traumatic text. Well, I, and of course I don't want to justify my perspective in all means, but I really think that is, that is a characteristic to trauma studies and to trauma, traumatic representations in cinema that you can never in a total way uh, get into conclusion and you, you can never really get into a closure of the narrative of, or, or, or of any confession or of any traumatic confession or of any traumatic experience and the trauma lurks beneath the surface at the end. But I am alive and I am not afraid. And this, this is why you need to shut it in a way, like close it in a way, even if this way is not so uh, compatible to what happened before that. So I totally agree to what you say on Jarhead, but I think Full Metal Jacket is part of these traumatic texts or post-traumatic texts. And what else we can say is that these thoughts that we, we listen to when, when he talks, walking to the Perfume River. I'm in a world of shit. Yes, but I am alive and I am not afraid. Makes him the faithful son of Hartman. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. The deadliest weapon in the world is a Marine and his rifle. Your rifle is only a tool. It is a hard heart that kills. If your killer instincts are not clean and strong, you will hesitate at the moment of truth. And then you will be in a world of shit because Marines are not allowed to die without permission. And if we look at, the, at Hartman as, 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 a, as a father figure that represents the negative father figures, which, which is one of the most impressive constructed in Vietnam War films, and the fratricide, because Gomer Pyle or Leonardo uh, finally killed him or murdered him. Leonard, if Hartman comes in here and catches us. We'll both be in a world of I am in a world of So if, if Joker goes back to the Hartmannian worldview, we can definitely uh, see that through this perspective. 
not through the victorious overtones. You do say that you want to be explicit about the risks of really focusing on and centering the narratives of men. In your, your book, you have a very broad analysis in the way that you look at perpetrator trauma, but I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on how no notions like whiteness, cis-heteronormativity, maybe the settler colonial patriarch play into these, um, these trends that you see. Well, I think you, you really point your finger on the question of morality or the morals or the ideological values that these texts, these films carry with them. And this is, this is quite a problem because I think the moral values are shattered during the war or totally shattered most of the times. When we know that many soldiers killed their surgeons during the Vietnam War, it's like the, one of the most famous uh, phenomenon of the war. So we have this uh, breakdown of the, not only of the father figure, but also of the fraternal and the brotherhood, the masculine bond. And with the masculine bond and with the father figure uh, or the fraternal figure and the symbolic figure, the order, the social order collapse, the value system collapses as well. So I, I, I'm not sure that the films are pointing uh, again, very directly against imperialism or, or for uh, white masculinity. Um, and I think most important, they hardly represent the Vietnamese, which is really interesting. And so the question was how, how whiteness get into it. So I, th I think that this is a total denial in a way, uh, or maybe not in a way, this is a total denial of this group of films, of this corpus, that at its best, they look at the Vietnamese, I think at, at rape incidents with shock and horror, like in casualties of war, but it, this is not an, an, a representation of the Vietnamese people. But most of the time, these are what we know in other uh, colonial films or post-colonial films, like mass of nameless people, according to the worst stereotype. This is one facet of the phenomenon. The other facet is that in, in the lake or the absence of morality, and, and, in, and when we, you have this moral ambiguity every now and then, what we can say is that these films demand the spectator to be the moral other. So the way that they present the, the breakdown of morality, the collapse of morality, the basic scenario of arguing over morality and the collapse of all these values really demand the spectator to, to take a position, to make a stand. This is why I define my field of interest as being set on trauma cinema and ethics, because I think maybe the most precious contribution of cinema to us spectators, not scholars, but spectators, is the ability to, to transform the spectator to a person who, who can reflect ethically on the worldview that, that cinema expose on the ethics that cinema expose. And in Vietnam War films, this is very important, or maybe the major component that comes out of representing the PTSD complex. 
The methodology of defeated masculinity is really cool, and it, it really describes some of the ways and the places that this reflection then is going to be contextualized within the kind of um, corpus of the defeated male or the narrative of the defeated male. Um, the methodology of the book, you touched on this. You took New German cinema after World War II and then American post-traumatic cinema after Vietnam, and you described three models that basically characterize, uh, at this point of your research, post-traumatic masculinity in each. In New German cinema, you say it is marked by the infantile asexual, the utopian bisexual, and the transsexual. While in American cinema, uh, we see post-traumatic masculinity framed as asexual hypermasculine, homoerotic, and impotent. Um, would you like to just describe briefly how these characterizations work? Well, I suggest that we we focus, if you with your permission on the Vietnam War films, because the films, the new German films are not are not war films. They're mostly drama films. Okay. And my reading of them and my interpretation of them is a totally different methodology. Okay. When and we need a lot of time to to analyze and describe that. So if if it's okay with you, I'll focus on the uh, on, on masculinity in the Vietnam uh, films. I, I chose to to um, access the access of violence and the access of sexuality, because sexuality has affinity to nationalism, of course, all over the major Western philosophy in Eastern as well, but mostly in Western philosophy. What I find really intriguing is that what I call a, a sexual hypermasculine uh, model. Is this is is the most murderous uh, group of films, and it's very very interesting that in this very highly murderous group of films, the protagonists are not sexual. What I describe is a dialectic between what I call uh, the hunter and the captive, based on the historian uh, Richard Slotkin's film. Maybe it's, it will be good if I briefly explain that. Defeat means falling into a state of captivity. This might be a real captivity, and it might be uh, some of the basic situation of the, being captivated in an enemy trap, but it could be a metaphorical captivity as well. So this is the basic scenario of entering this trap in most of the film that typifies the American experience, the American soldiers' experience in the Vietnam War. So in a way, we have this captivity and the other side of the spectrum says that the protagonists are kind of hunters, like Michael Robert De Niro figure in The Deer Hunter. The way that the American soldier relate to the uh, characteristics of the Native American, embrace the characteristics of a Native American as, as hunters. And then we have this masculinity that during the captivity period is forced to channel its sexuality into violence, usually often cathartic violence. And this violence undermines its sexuality. So the result is the metaphorical return to captivity. To put it in, in simple words, in the end of this process, the captive is totally sexually powerless. So we have this beginning of the Indian masculine uh, qualities and with moral and patriotic values, 
And in the end, we have this totally post-traumatic figure devoid of any masculinity, like we see in this group of films. And I think these dialectics of hunter and captive, being with power, being with the, this hegemonic power, maybe also imperialist power, but as I said, the films do not um, relate to that. Uh, but, we, but, but being the hero and then becoming the captive is the most dramatic transformation that the, the soldiers are going through in these films. And I think the lack of sexuality uh, expresses this in, in, in a most profound way. So then you have the homoerotic model, which is homoerotic and not homosocial according to Cedric, because we have this masculinity which is grounded in the in brotherhood, in male bonding, as an alternative to the lone wolf masculinity, which is characteristic of the asexual hypermasculine model. And the concept of brotherhood really collapsed over the, the issue of disagreement on moral questions. Uh, for example, how to treat villagers suspecting of providing assistance to the uh, Viet Cong, uh, for instance, in platoon, or the abduction and rape of Vietnamese girl in casualties of war, the radio censorship uh, of critic of President Nixon and the friendship with the local resident in Good Morning Vietnam, and so on and so forth. So these, these disagreements reveal the absence of moral um, partnership at the national and ideological level. So we get this, the high point of this integration process uh, in the fratricide. And all in all, we can see the fragile nature of the fraternal structure. Uh, this means that the male bonding doesn't work, put it very, very bluntly very simply in a simplistic way we can see this is not only the ambivalent or attitude uh, of the soldier in regard to the war, in, war itself and the clashes between them in regard to the war itself and the absence of ethical solidarity and the absence of shared ideological goals that characterize the vietnam war film so they are devoid of any connection to values, to history, to sexuality, to psychology, and the, the totally some kind of decontextualization of male subjectivity. And so the homoerotic model presents this uh, collapse. And the third model is the impotent model, which in which we can see only rare, rare um, representations of impotency and disability, because in this case, as I see the defeat is inscribed on the, on the body, written on the body, and the film that really do not want to acknowledge defeat, uh, do not represent this awful pain. And when they represent it, they usually also require some kind of rehabilitation process in which the protagonist will have some kind of sexual relations with a woman. And at the end, like in the, at the end of Born in the Fourth of July, he becomes the social father, so-called. So being a social father is, is some kind of displacement 
of is impotent. Okay, okay, listen up, listen up. Hey, 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 we're gonna take the hall back. You hear that? Let's go to the gate, we're gonna take the fucking hall back, all right? Fall out, let's go. Uh, in your newer text, then, is Waltzing with Brashear, Perpetrator, Trauma, and Cinema. You have uh, this statement that really made me think. You wonder whether in the age of new war, uh, documentary cinema is capable of liberating world audiences from what you call trauma, envy, and um, thrusting trauma culture into the realm of ethics. You have um, emphasized already that ethics is really your focal point here with cinema. So I really appreciate the distinction between what you, what you call trauma envy um, and ethics. And I'm wondering if you could just describe this a little bit. Yeah, maybe we should begin with explaining briefly what is a perpetrator trauma. Because in my book, I define between psychological trauma and ethical trauma. Most of the um, literature on trauma, the literature in psychology, in psychiatry, in psychoanalysis, and in cultural studies, since Freud wrote the etiology of hysteria, 1895 or 1960, today focus on uh, the psychological trauma, of course, and focus on the victim. The figure of the perpetrator or the figure of the victimizer was not accepted in any any way by this. And I think it's rightly so because we were in depth of the victims, especially after the Holocaust. We had to listen to the victims. We had to to be part of these communities that support the victims and collect their testimonies. So we need this phase in cultural studies and in, in cultural trauma and in social life. In the West, we need this phase of listening very carefully and constituting the age of the witness before we go to search or delve into the figure of the perpetrator, or, and especially perpetrator trauma. And when I looked at Israeli films that has to do with with the, the that represent the clash between the soldier and civilian civilians and not only israeli films also the american films in iraq afghanistan or pakistan in in which there was this very famous clash between the soldier and civilian population i saw in many films this the, that many films present this unique um unique um conception of trauma which is an ethical trauma and ethical trauma is not psychological trauma ethical trauma does not care generally or take the the suffering of the soldiers second in the hierarchy the, the first thing in the hierarchy is not the suffering of the soldier his symptoms or belated symptoms and all these but the contradiction, the major contradiction uh, in moral in moral questions and ethical questions that really focus on the victim. And the victim is not the soldier, the victim is the other, the, the Iraqi, the, the Palestinian, the Afghanistan uh, popula- civil population, and not the soldiers. So these are two different kinds of traumas. One which focused on moral disintegration and the other focus of, on mental disintegration. And in most of the films, I think the American films, finally you find that this, the, the protagonist 
is the suffering American soldier. And they did not get into the next phase of perpetrator of trauma defined in ethical terms. And in this way, I think uh, Israeli cinema or group of documentary films on the Second Intifada, which is the break uh, of the Palestinian um, violence in Israel during the early 2000, 2002 till 2004, the films that relate to this clash between Israeli soldiers, the documentary film that relate to this clash between Israeli soldiers and Palestinian po civil population are films that present the uncathartic confession of soldiers that attacks to the wrongdoing that they made during their service and with which they cannot live after they they finish the compulsory service, you know, this is in Israel, both for men and women, it's compulsory service. And when they left the army, sometimes many years after that, they join uh, the movement that we call Breaking the Silence. I don't know if you heard about it. And that includes mostly uh, veterans of, of all kind of Israeli wars, but especially since the occupation, the uh, 67 occupation. And, and in this film, this uncathartic confession, really want to expose the truth about the trauma of the soldier that has made this awful violation of human rights in the occupied territories. But this is not like um, self-pity or asking for mercy or asking the audience to identify with him or herself. It's mostly looking at the, our moral obligation as Israelis to, towards the Palestinian. So I describe this new phenomenon of ethical trauma coming out of, I think what I look, what I see is the, uh, this group of pioneer Israeli documentary films. I think it's a pioneer group in terms of, in global terms, not only in Israeli terms, because I cannot see it in the major or paradigmatic American films on Iraq, Afghanistan and Pakistan as yet. This is the total diminishing of trauma envy. It's not as in, in this traumanian world, <laughs> if I may say, a world is totally fascinating by, tra by trauma envy. These films put another uh, criteria, which is an, the ethical view on their role, the role that they play uh, during their service in the occupied territories. I'm pretty sure we're talking about Waltzing with Bashir, Z32, yeah. and To See If I'm Smiling. Yeah, among others. There are many more. Yeah. These are the three in the book. And you say, in contrast to Waltzing with Bashir and Z32, uh, in the film To See If I'm Smiling, women soldiers, very much unlike male soldiers in the other movies, talk um, about their past very directly with a level of self-awareness and acknowledgement of guilt that is uncommon in male perpetrators' confessions that focuses more on the kind of psychological aspects of what you're describing, it would seem. Um, uh, to see if I'm smiling, we have a narrative that is pretty much devoid of self-pity, narcissistic, um, and self-blaming. This is talking about a woman confronting a very disturbing image of herself that was taken while she was in the military. I'm not sure if I'm not 
אבל אני יודעת שהם כן התרחשו בגלל העוצמה שבה אני מרגישה אותם. So they, their relation or their proximity to the, all these evil doings are on another level. And, and um, they didn't murder, they didn't kill any civilian population. So yeah. if we can make some kind of hierarchy in these wrongdoings, I think this is the reason why the women or the female soldiers can express their... Um, And, and expose their deeds in an easiest, the easiest way in comparison to their um, colleagues. We've got just a, a few more questions here as we run out of time, and this is a good segue. Uh, you, you have a couple of findings about how the more complicit perpetrators seem to avoid direct accountability, while folks who are less complicit tend to be more direct. Um, I think this is insightful. You're talking here about the folks who are in combat and who are not. Uh, yeah. You say, argue that essentially the folks who do the worst of harms are framed in ways that kind of mask their accountability or diffuse their accountability to others, where the people who do smaller things that enable oppression are able to face up to account for even try to own um, their deeds. Uh, you argue that this has a lot to do with their uh, proximity and complicity to some of these deeds. I'm wondering if it also links more broadly to conversations about what is very generally called fragility, power not wanting to look at itself. When we describe so much of the defeated masculinity um, in terms of an ideology, it would seem to me that masculinity then would be very wrapped up in how one can dodge or account for their complicity. Is that a fair connection to make or am I missing some points? Yes, I think it is. Yes, I think it is. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. But the question is, do the films point their finger to the regime? Do they ask the, um, the one who sent the soldiers to the occupied territories to take some accountability on on the soldiers who are doing their work and they on on their name and saying and I think this is the main and uh, the main thing if 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 this happens then cinema is doing its job yep yeah so much of the movies that we've talked about so many of the movies from Vietnam ultimately just dissolve to like focusing on a white male perpetrator wondering how he's going to live with himself and asking himself how he's going to live with himself and these movies are described as like thoughtful and sometimes even anti-war in ways that are a little disturbing to me because these are not ethical questions as you're driving at uh one of the questions that we ask the folks that we invite on here and it is a very generic question um, if it doesn't work as a question, we're interested in your thoughts on this. Do you think it's possible to make an anti-war movie, given all of the contexts that we have? It sounds, based on your prior answer, that by driving more towards questions about accountability, the documentary perhaps can make very anti-war frames for movies. Is that fair? Sure. Sure. And you think that cinema enables us to live in those frames in ways that don't simply replicate them 
um, but that can replicate them in ways that interrogate them for future purposes? The question that the, the, your first question or your first comment in relation to feature films as opposed to documentary films, well, the question, well, the answer is very simple in a way, right? Because if, if you, if you uh, watch a film in which the protagonist speaks on their, on their, their evil doing in, during war and they regret what they do, and they don't want to see themselves as victim and they want to the focus to be on the other side, on the real victims of the war, then it's an anti-war film. But how many people are watching documentary films that are doing this? Not so many. So we are, we are here in a trap between the very famous uh, narrative or feature films and documentary films, although, although documentary cinema, as we know, is very prosperous in the last 20, maybe 30, 25 years or so, we still do not reach the level of, of acknowledgement that, of course, feature films get. Mm -hmm. So this is one. So this is one comment. The, the, the second comment is that do we have an anti-war film? I think Path of Glory is an anti-war film. Ellen Klimov's is a very famous anti-war film. Ellen Klimov's most famous is probably 1985's Come and See. Usually when we want to get into the spectacle of war, the directors lose it. So this is the very thin line, walking on a very thin line. The very first movie we watched for this project was A Paths of Glory. And it's my, yeah, my buddy Charles, it's one of his favorite. And we've had a long debate about that movie. I accused it of being a little bloodless because it was made during censorship. I said that the battle scenes look pretty spectacular. They look like a pretty great battle scene. I agree to that. I agree. Yeah, but the narrative is unequivocally twisted in ways that There's force no you to ambiguity. leave that theater. Right. No. There is no ambiguity whatsoever. Sir? No. Yes, sir. I want us to move back to the front immediately. I'll give the men a few minutes more, Sergeant. Yes, sir. And when you look at the Vietnam War films, you see the ambiguity is going through all the levels of the cinematic text and the narrative and the figure. So, yes. Yeah, it's such a great film. I am not sure, did I answer your question? Did I? 
I think you did. Yeah, I, I just want to echo to your your note on profitability. We have compared how much it costs to make various movies and how much they get back, the return on the investment, which determines who gets to keep making movies. Stanley Kubrick famously had to spend a bunch of his own money to make Paths of Glory. Otherwise, it never would get made. And documentaries tend to fare worse than movies like Transformers or yeah. Harry Potter or things like that. They do not tend to survive as much, but they're important. And you're right. I, I think we're seeing more of those. And I think we're seeing more people having the tools necessary to make them, which is good. Yeah. And we see more of them at the, at the auditorium and, and in streaming than we used to. Mm-hmm. More platforms for them. And for maybe sure. that reality TV has pushed it, and there are many more reasons for that. And and and, and I'm happy that this is happening. Agree. Well, we got one more question here for you. Thanks very much again for your time. We're just curious, what are you reading right now? What are you watching or listening to that's really enlightening or that you'd like to share with us so that we can check it out ourselves? Thank you so much. Uh, two years ago, during the first stage of the COVID crisis, uh, my book on Cambodian cinema has been published. <laughs> And I'm very, uh, I would be happy to say a few words on uh, about that. Please, yeah, sounds great. We had, we launched the, the book. There is the launching of the book with Kathy Carutas joined me and Ben Kiernan talking about what I call perpetrator cinema. I devoted seven years to this book, to this research and book, because Cambodia is very far from Israel. Hmm. And in a way, I was, uh, it was too painful for me to go on and delve into Israeli cinema because I am an Israeli, as, 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 I, as I said. And my position on the left is problematic as well. And I had to get some rest out of all this very complex situation to which we won't get into now. And, and I watched a film during one of the festivals. I watched a film, a Cambodian film uh, made by the director I didn't know. His name is Risi Pan. His, his film, The Missing Picture, was nominated for an Oscar two years ago or so. Il y a tant d'images dans le monde qu'on croit avoir tout vu, tout pensé. Depuis des années, je cherche une image qui manque, une photographie prise entre 1975 So I went to Cambodia, I got uh, a fund, I won a fund and I went to Cambodia and after seven years I wrote this book in which I explore a new stage in the cinematic depiction of genocide that emerged uh, in Cambodian documentary in the late 20th and early 21 uh, centuries. And what I can say is that while past films um, documenting the Holocaust and other genocide, genocide have focused on collecting on foregrounding the testimony of survivors and victims, what, what we can see in Cambodian documentary cinema is a direct confrontation between the first generation survivor and perpetrator of genocide. And this is like unimaginable in, in Europe after World War II. You cannot imagine, for instance, that a, a Jewish person or a, a 
homosexual, a gay person or a gypsy will come and sit uh, in front of the Nazi and ask him all kinds of questions about what happened, what, what's the truth. And it happens in Cambodia because the, the genocide in Cambodia during the 70s is an auto-genocide in which the communists uh, murder their own people. Um, two million, approximately two million out of eight million. So the perpetrator continued to live their life near their neighbors and, in, and we have these Khmer Rouge persons in almost in every family. So after, after a decade or so, during the, the 90s and especially during the beginning of this century, um, directors began to look for the perpetrators in the nearby villages, uh, inside the family, and in all over the country of Cambodia. And they, they, they made documentary film that proposes this direct confrontation between the survivor and the perpetrator, which I call a duel. Uh, of course, when I began this research, I was not aware at all that this is what I will find. And I think what is very impressive in this fantastic uh, artistic Cambodian cinema is um, that it marks the shift um, of what I call, this is the, there's a kind of transition from the era of the witness to the era of the perpetrator. And I think the Cambodian documentary cinema uh, is, is, is marking this shift. It sounds like a really great book. You, you definitely mentioned it um, when we got started with this, and I'm going to check it out. We might have to bring you back if we can to talk about Thank it. Thank you so much. So I've been working on, on, on the Cambodian perpetration, with it, which is a unique, unique phenomenon, but in a way it's really um, shed light on the entire uh, issue of perpetrator cinema globally, because we have a spate of documentary films around the globe which deals with perpetrators. Yeah. A new wave. A new global, which I which I analyze in the book as well. Well, it sounds like a really incredible text. Raya Morag is a professor in cinema studies in the Department of Communication and Journalism at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Her research deals with post-traumatic cinema and corporeal feminist film critique. She's the author of numerous texts. She just described her newest, Perpetrator Cinema, Confronting Genocide in Cambodian Documentary. Today, we also talked about defeated masculinity, post-traumatic cinema in the aftermath of war, and waltzing with Brashear, Perpetrator Trauma, and cinema. Professor Morag, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Fantastic. This has been an episode of Dirt Maps, a tributary to the Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema. If you'd like to learn more, you can look for the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L War Project, wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am alive, and I am not afraid.